For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. And the title of our sermon this morning, The Golden Chain. The Golden Chain. This is part one, Romans chapter eight, verses 28 through 30. Now, once again, we're back in the eighth chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. And once again, back in this uh, magnificent text that comprises verses 28 through 30. It's here over several weeks now that we've been considering together God's eternal purpose toward those whom he has justified through faith alone in his son. God's eternal relationship, if you will, to believers. God's eternal purpose toward them. Our sovereign God, uh, the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will, is actively at work through his providence, working all things together for our good. All things for the good of those who have been given a new heart by the Spirit with transformed affections whereby we love God and all things for the good of those he has effectually called to himself by a work of the Spirit. From spiritually dead in trespasses and sins to alive in Jesus Christ to God. All things working together for our good according to his divine omnipotence. All things working together for our good according to his divine omnisapience. All things working together for our good according to his divine purpose. Now that purpose, as it directly concerns the believer, is conceived of in our text as nothing short than the complete conformity of our person with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The old man crucified together with him. The new man established upon the ruins of the old, renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We're being conformed into the image of the son. Our mind, our thoughts, our desires, our affections, our will, our emotions, our imaginations, our actions, even our very bodies in conformity with his perfect and glorified person. That's where we're headed, amen? Sooner rather than later. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Uh, Now, all of that, all of that for the ultimate purpose concerning the Lord Jesus Christ himself so that he, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. He is the firstborn of all creation, certainly, as Colossians chapter 1, in that by him and through him and for him, all things were created, and in him, all things consisting. But ultimately, he is the firstborn of a new creation, the firstborn among the dead ones, the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, of those who have fallen asleep, so to speak, in that By him, by the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a new creation. There is resurrection and there is eternal life. He has brought life out of death, so to speak. So that, the Bible says, so that in all things, Colossians 1, he may have the preeminence. Head over all things to his body, the church, the firstborn among many brethren. How then shall we live? Therefore, brothers and sisters, reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus our Lord. Our life, Paul says, is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden with him. 
And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. It is now, even in this life, that the, the resurrection age to come has invaded this present age. And it is with divine power, with divine wisdom, and in divine accomplishment that God is working all things together in the pursuit of his good purpose. It's why all things work together for our good. That's why. That's why God is working all things together for our good, to those who love him, to those who are the called according to that purpose, for whom he has effectually called according to his purpose. What's our responsibility then? Brothers and sisters, we're to pursue that purpose. If that is God's will for us, our sanctification, our conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, then that should be our pursuit, even in this age, as God makes us fit subjects for the next age. Right? We should be in pursuit of his purposes. Now, the point then now that we'll focus our remaining time in consideration of this text this morning is how God does that. That point, how, with respect to his people, with respect to those whom he has called, how does God then accomplish this good purpose? Think with me. The path that leads from the decree of God in the eternal counsels of the Godhead Right? The path it leads from the counsels of the Godhead in eternity to the divine accomplishment of all that God has purposed through the person and work of his son, that path, the path from decree to divine accomplishment is described by a series of representative divine works in our text. It's not a comprehensive list of works, but a representative list of works. They begin in verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The first of the English Puritans, his name was William Perkins. William Perkins referred to this series of connected works as the golden chain. How does God accomplish his purpose of exalting his son through the salvation of undeserving sinners? God does it through a golden chain of connected, sovereign acts of God. It all is a work of God. All of it begins with God and ends with God. It begins with his foreknowledge. It ends with the glorification of those whom he foreknew. A chain of linked or connected works of God all secured through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most professing Christians today, most professing Christians for a while, are not taught the Bible. Uh, They're not taught these things. There's There's a tendency among professing Christians today to think of salvation as a single monolithic act. How are you saved? I'm saved because I walked an aisle, I said a prayer. I took some sacrament, you know, did some superstitious sacramental thing. Often it's, it's boiled down to an act of man. I did it, right? I did it. <clears throat> I was saved when I said the prayer. I was saved, I was saved when I meant it when I said the prayer. Or I, say, I was saved when I was baptized. Pick your poison. That's what it is. But in the book that we're studying in small groups now, uh, John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied, Murray describes the provision that God has made for our salvation as strikingly manifold. 
It is not a single monolithic act. It is strikingly manifold. It appears in the eternal counsel of God. It appears in the historic accomplishment of redemption by the work of Christ. It appears in the application of redemption continuously and progressively until it reaches its consummation in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. It comprises, Murray says, a series of acts and processes, each having its own distinct meaning, function, and purpose in the action and grace of God. When you stop to think about it, and I want to encourage us all to do that, when you meditate on it, it is astounding, astounding what it takes to save a sinner. Absolutely staggering the work or activity of God through our Lord Jesus Christ to reconcile undeserving sinners to himself such that God remains both just and the justifier of those who place faith alone in his son alone. It is staggering what it takes to save a sinner. All secured through the work of the son alone, all applied through the means of faith alone, so that it all terminates upon the glory of God alone. And behind it all, behind every act, behind every process, is the work of our sovereign God by his grace alone, where even the faith through which we are justified is a gift from him. Our salvation is a manifold wonder. <laughs> A, a majestic display of, um, of divine omniscience, of divine omnisapience, of divine wisdom and divine power. Those acts, those processes are discernible in Scripture as following a distinctive order or discernible order. And we refer to this order by the Latin phrase ordo salutis, ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Among the many acts, that make up that ordo salutis, Paul again references five in our text. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Foreknowledge, predestination. You see them there? Calling, justification, and glorification. In contrast with repentance and faith, which are our acts, it's something that we do, that which we are called to do, these five representative acts in the ordo salutis are all acts of God. Now think with me, think with me. The order here is really important. We start there. The order is important. Paul is not being random. Paul is not just pulling theological terms out of the air and plopping them in whatever order he sees fit. Paul is not being random. Uh, there is significant, there are significant implications associated with the order of this list. Now, with respect to the five acts of God listed here by Paul, notice in verse 28, the believers are called according to his purpose. Now, I want to prove order for us from the text. Believers are called according to his purpose. And what does that imply? It, believe, it implies that believers are called according to his purpose. <laughs> his purpose was established before they were called. Do you see? Clearly, his purpose established before believers are called. Because, verse 29, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Moreover, verse 30, whom he predestined, these predestined ones he also called. In other words, think with me now, God's purpose from verse 28 consists of God's foreknowledge and God's predestination. And so God's foreknowledge and God's predestination come before calling. God calls them according to his purpose, okay? It forms the basis, if you will, on which believers are called. Now we know the first two 
Foreknowledge and predestination, we're not going to take time to examine this in the text, but we know the first two, foreknowledge and predestination, take place in eternity. There are many texts in the Bible which say that very thing. As scripture often says, before the foundation of the world, I'm thinking in particular of Ephesians chapter one. In him, he chose us before the foundation of the world. We were predestined before the foundation of the world, okay? The next three then, the next three, calling, justification, and glorification each take place in time with glorification necessarily last. Now notice then in the language of verse 30, literally in the Greek, notice verse 30. Whom he predestined, these, these predestined ones, he also called, meaning that he did not call any who were not predestined. You see that from the text. Again, what are we doing? We're proving order. We're proving order. Whom he called these, the called ones, these he also justified, meaning that he did not justify any who were not called, any who were not predestined, okay? Now, why is this important? What are we proving? We're proving order, and biblical order helps us to avoid error, and error abounds on, on this text, okay? For example, let me give you an example. There are those who believe in what is called eternal justification, eternal justification, that God predestined those whom he justified, and so their justification is eternal. They were justified before the foundation of the world. Not if calling comes before justification, which it does from our text. Amen? Calling precedes justification, which precedes glorification. There's an order to God's work in time. Eternal justification is an error. Let me give you another example. We're justified through the means of faith. We're justified through the means of faith. If you've been working with us through the book of Romans, Paul has made that point abundantly clear, okay? Faith necessarily precedes justification, comes before it, because we're justified through or on the basis of faith in the finished person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So faith then is also the necessary response to God's call. God's call. God calls. How do we respond? We respond in faith. If we're responding biblically, if we're responding the way that we should. If we're responding like a rational person would, we respond in faith. So faith then, think with me, would come between calling and justification in the ordo salutis. Calling, then faith, then justification. Well, Paul says that we're dead in trespasses and sins. That one who is dead in sin is incapable of faith. That's why John chapter three, verse three says, unless he is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Seeing the kingdom of heaven is certainly an act of faith. And so being born again or regeneration must of necessity precede faith. So then the order calling regeneration, faith, justification. You following along? As some, okay, hang in there with me, okay? John 6, 44. The Bible says that no one can come to Jesus Christ unless the Father draws him. Now, coming to Jesus Christ is certainly an act of faith. You don't come to Jesus Christ without faith. Coming to Jesus Christ is an act of faith. And so God then, drawing the sinner, must of necessity precede faith Otherwise, John chapter 6, verse 44, John chapter 6, verse 65, the sinner will not come, 
Okay? So then calling, the calling of God in the ordo salutis of necessity involves the drawing of God to himself. So regeneration or God's calling, regeneration prior to faith, prior to justification. Okay? From that and from multiple texts in scripture, we understand that our salvation then does not wait upon or hinge upon our decision. Is there anything in that order that pertains to our decision? No, it is entirely a work of God. Necessarily so, because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Do you see? From the ordo salutis, it becomes really important. Calling, first, foreknowledge, predestination. Then calling, the drawing of God. The calling of God is called an effectual call because it comes with divine power. Right? The calling of God that draws the sinner to himself, giving them new birth, regeneration, regeneration preceding faith, which precedes justification. Our justification precedes our glorification. The order becomes very important. And I encourage you to meditate on that and commit it to your heart and mind as you think through those things. Our salvation does not wait upon or hinge upon our decision, but rather our decision in faith is made possible only by a sovereign work of God. Our faith made possible only by a sovereign work of God. If we're all dead in sin, why is it that you have responded when others have not? Why is it that you're here this morning and others are not anywhere near a church this morning? Not even retaining God in their knowledge this morning, nor were they thankful, right? Romans chapter 1. Why is it? Who has made you to differ from others? Are you seriously going to put your thumbs under your overall strength? Oh, it was it's because I'm more righteous than those other sinners. Is that what you're going to say? It was all me. It, I was the one. No, it's all of grace, all of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen. Amen. Our salvation already decreed by God in eternity, is then carried out by God in time. He calls us to himself with an effectual calling, a calling that includes or involves the power and the new life, whereby a dead sinner is made capable of faith. It's in that sense that our faith is not a work, but rather it is the gift of God. All of this putting an end to the heresy of Arminianism or the heresy of Pelagianism, two heresies that have swamped the evangelical church in our country in this day. Puts an end to any thought of human contribution, establishing the biblical fact that our salvation is all of grace. And listen, if it is all of grace, this is Paul's argument in Romans chapter four, if it is all of God's grace according to his word, it forms an inevitable, inexorable, unbreakable chain founded in the faithfulness of God upon the work of our Lord Jesus Christ applied by the spirit. And therefore, Romans chapter four, verse 16, it is sure, it is certain to all the seed of Abraham whose seed you are if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If it's all of grace, then it is certain. And you can take it to the bank, amen? Now the first the first of these, now that we've considered the order, the first of these saving acts of God, the source, if you will, from which all others flow, the seed out of which all the others grow is God's foreknowledge. 
Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, what does it mean that God foreknew those whom he would predestine, call, justify, and glorify? In other words, what does it mean that God foreknew those whom he would save? He foreknows them. What does that mean? The word in its most basic sense refers to knowing beforehand, knowing beforehand, right? And at once, like the Arminian bursts in the door. Aha, see, I told you that was the case. God simply looks down the corridor of time. (laughs) He knows the future, so he knows what's going to happen, and he elects based upon what he knows will happen in the future. No, that's not what the Bible teaches, okay? The, The Arminian throws out everything else the Bible says about election. The Arminian throws out everything else the Bible says about God's sovereign decrees or unconditional election, and he says God simply knows the future. He looks down the corridor of time. He knows beforehand what will happen. So then election is not God's decreed will. God's election is simply God's choice of those that he knows would eventually choose him. You see? That's not God's determined plan or purpose. Is that what Paul means here by the use of this word, foreknowledge? Is foreknowledge simply referring to a prior knowledge of future events? No. And let's look at that together. Is it true that God foresees faith? Absolutely it is. God foresees all things which come to pass. But as we've already seen, where does that faith originate? It originates with God himself. He is the author and the finisher of it. And we're right back to the foundation of God's decree. God himself having decreed faith in that person. Verse 29. Verse 29 does not refer to what he foreknew, but rather to whom he foreknew. Do you see that? And when the word is used in scripture with reference to a person, when foreknowledge is used in reference to a people, it is filled with meaning that goes far beyond mere cognizance or mere mental knowledge, okay? Look with me at Genesis chapter 18. Let's turn to a couple of passages and look at this in context. Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis 18, God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But God takes note of Abraham because God has determined to enter into a covenant with Abraham. So about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, God says this in verse 17. Genesis chapter 18, verse 17. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Verse 19, for I have known him in order that, he's known him with a purpose, that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Now, what, what does it mean? Think with me. What does it mean that God knew Abraham? It certainly means here, doesn't it, that God knew Abraham in distinction from others. Right? God knew Abraham in a distinctive way. He knows Abraham in this sense, in a way that he does not know. Uh, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know about them or doesn't know everything about them. The very he- hairs of their head are numbered. But God is saying that he knows Abraham in a distinctive way. He's entered into covenant with Abraham. God knew him, foreknew him, if you will, with a purpose. That Abraham, that purpose that Abraham might command his children and keep the way of the Lord. For God to know Abraham in this context, if you think through it with me, 
implies that God looked upon Abraham with a special or particular regard, in distinction from others, with a particular interest or a particular purpose. You could say with a particular love, right? God looks upon Abraham in a particular way. He knows him in a particular way. Look at Exodus chapter 2. A few pages to the right. Exodus chapter 2. We fast forward a little while and the children of Israel now are in severe bondage in Egypt. And look there, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Who were they? They were the fathers, the patriarchs of Israel, right? He had entered into covenant with Abraham. He repeated that covenant with Isaac and with Jacob. These are the children of his covenant, right? So verse 25 then, and God then looked upon the children of Israel and God, the word there literally means knew them. And God knew them. He looked upon them with a particular care. He regarded them with a particular interest. That particular interest, a covenantal interest. He didn't simply know about them. The Bible says he knew them. Do you see? Look at Amos in the prophets. Amos chapter three. Look there with me. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter three. Speaking here again of Israel. Amos chapter three, verse one. Hear this word, the prophet says. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. There it is again. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Is it that God had no knowledge whatsoever of any other nation on the earth at that time? Yeah, no idea. Who are those people, those Canaanites over there? Those, no, God knew them very well. God had marked them for iniquity, right? God knew them very well, but he knows Israel in a particular way. And that word is used to communicate that particular interest, that particular love. You only, God says, have I known of all the families of the earth. It means that God had a particular interest in Israel, a covenant interest, a particular delight in and love for Israel. Often, even in the Old Testament, the word, this word for no, is actually used as a euphemism for physical intimacy. In Genesis chapter four, verse one, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. When God is described as the one who has known his people, it means that he looks upon them with a particular or a distinguishing love or affection. He looks upon them with a particular delight or interest or action. This meaning or this intention of the word, of that word, all throughout the Old Testament is then brought into the New Testament. Look at Acts chapter two with me. Acts chapter two. And we see this word used in the very same way in the New Testament. And just a couple of examples with respect to this. Acts chapter 2, we have Peter preaching his sermon at Pentecost. And in verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. By the way, by the way, that's what miracles and wonders and signs are meant to do. They're meant to attest to the person and work of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and meant to attest to the revelation of God's word on behalf of the prophets, the apostles that he sent. Uh, it's not the charismania that we see today, okay? God's determined purpose here. A man attested, this is, these are the words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to God, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So here, God's foreknowledge, his foreknowledge connected with his determined purpose. He was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Determined purpose there is a word referring to God's will or God's plan. Foreknowledge, for you guys studying Greek, an instrumental dative, or it's, an, um, it's a dative of means, and it refers to the determined means by which that action was taken, was, was, came about, by which it was taken. In other words... God planned it, it was by his determined purpose, and God foreordained it, it was according to his foreknowledge. Make sense? In Acts chapter 4, if you go over a couple of pages, in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, these lawless men did what God's will foreknew or foreordained would be done. What God's plan foreordained would be done, they did. Look with me at Romans chapter 11. One last place here. Romans chapter 11. I look forward to getting this text with you. It's going to be so helpful in so many ways. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Speaking of the children of Israel. Paul says, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Same word. He's not cast them away because he has determined a particular interest in them as his people. Do you see? He determined beforehand to know them in a way that he did not know any other nation or any other people on the planet. Then Paul continues, verse 2. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him in verse four? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. According to the decisions of men, no. According to their foreseen faith, no. According to God's own decree. According to God's gracious election. His foreknowledge connected to, attached to, his sovereign election. Paul's point in Romans 11, we'll get there soon. Paul's point is to say that there is a remnant preserved in his own day on the very same basis that a remnant was preserved in Elijah's day. Not on the basis of some foreseen work, 
not on the basis of some foreseen faith, but rather on the basis of God's determined purpose, God's electing grace. In other words, God doesn't reward us on the basis of our choosing him. Isn't that what foreseen faith does? God looks down the corridor of time. He says, oh, that person's going to choose me. And so because they're, they're so kind and so gracious to have chosen me, I'm going to elect them. And God rewards them on the basis of a work that they've done. There's no other way, no other way to understand that. In that scheme, in that method, methodology, even the faith becomes a work. And our salvation has nothing to do with a work of man. It is all of God's grace. Therefore, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God determined before the foundation of the world to foreordain or to foreknow, if you will, to set his particular and distinguishing love upon a chosen and elect people. Not for anything which he had foreseen in them. That's going to be the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 9, but rather because he decreed it to be so. He certainly foresees everyone. But think with me not everyone is predestined, not everyone is called, not everyone is justified, not everyone is glorified. Therefore, not all men are foreknown in the sense that verse 29 intends. So you have to ask the question then, in what sense does verse 29 intend foreknown to mean? Foreknown in a particular way. Foreknown attached to God's foreordination. Connected to predestination. Connected to God's decree. Only those whom he has taken a particular interest in, only those upon whom he has set his particular love and delight. It's for this reason that we can look at that word foreknown in this sense as synonymous with foreloved. And many often do consider it that way. God foreloves those whom he foreknows. He foreloves those who are his own by decree. This understanding is the one that is most consistent with the rest of the text too, isn't it? It's God who actively predestines. It is God who actively calls. It is God who actively justifies. It is God who actively glorifies. It is not God who passively foresees then some act of faith on the part of man in the future. To passively foresee doesn't fit with the determination of God that we see in the rest of the text. God is sovereign. Let that sink in. Right, as we consider God's unconditional election of sinners to salvation. What are the implications of this? If you're a Christian, if you have turned from sin to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is for the ultimate reason that God in eternity, before the planets were formed, determined to set his love upon you. That's what that means. And that's almost unfathomable to guilty, undeserving sinners. He chose you. 
because you were so lovable? <laughs> no, you're so good looking. No, <laughs> heavens no. <laughs> For no foreseen goodness in you. That's going to be the point of Romans chapter 9. For nothing that you've done, for nothing that you haven't done, (laughs) not for anything that you will do or won't do, but simply according to the good pleasure of his own will. Isn't that humbling? I remember um, as a very young Christian, um, I think the Lord had just saved me and I was, my head was a tangled mess. I'm reading the Bible voraciously, trying to understand these things. And I'm just having, I'm having difficulty. I'm wrestling, wrestling through the text of scripture. And I remember um, coming to the conclusion, it was like a light bulb went off, that this issue of election that I'd begin to hear about and began to see, uh, I now saw all over the Bible. And all of a sudden, uh, it just dawned on me, this is what the Bible teaches, this is what the Bible teaches. And almost the very next thought that, that popped into my head was, well, that's true. Then how do I know that God has elected me? How do I know that God has determined to set his love upon me? What a crushing thought in the beginning, right? All of a sudden, it takes salvation. It, it, it forces me to release my grip on all of the things that I might do to somehow earn favor with God or that I could do. Lord, you know I've gone to church. You know, you Lord, you know, I, I walked that aisle. I said the prayer. I meant it when I did it the thousandth time I said it, right? All those things, right? All those things, those things that I would grasp to. And it was like the Lord just, you know, <laughs> releasing my grip on those things, humbling me to the point where I had no other recourse no other option but to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And Lord, I have no other hope but you. My hope is in you alone. My trust is in you alone. And so I commend myself to you alone. I can do no other. I can do no other. And Lord, save me, right? Just forces the sinner to look beyond themselves to God who saves. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 Just as he chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and without blame before him. It's like saying that he predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son. Similar statement, right? In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will. And all of that, verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace, that grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. All a work of God's grace, amen. Amen. That love is not in response to anything you've done. That love is not in response to anything about you. The source of that love cannot be found within you. That love originates within God alone. That love only finds its source in the sovereign, unconditional, electing grace of God. And think about it. This is going to be Paul's point. Think about it. If God has been for you (laughs) from before the foundation of the world, working all things together for your 
ultimate good, then who could ever possibly stand against you? Right? No one and no thing. Now listen to me for a second now. The opposite is also true. In Matthew chapter 7, the Bible says that there are those, there are many, there are many, there are many who will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord. They'll profess their own righteousness. Look at all these things that we've done. And the Lord will say to them, depart from me, I never what? I never knew you. Does that mean he doesn't know anything about them? No, he knows everything about them. He is the Lord, the God who searches the heart. He knows everything about them. And he says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Depart from me into that place prepared for the devil and his angels, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a pretense to their eternal damnation. Do you see? I never knew you. Knew how? I've never known you in a particular saving way. I've never known you with that particular love. I've never known you. And it's said to those who have not repented and believed in the gospel. This is where the, the mystery is in the space, if you will, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We are charged. You are charged with repenting and believing in the gospel. If you do not turn from your sin, if you do not place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then God will say to you on that day, I never knew you. And the angels will gather them up like wood to be burned in the fire. Turn from your sin, amen? Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Peter says, doesn't he? Make your calling and election sure. How do you do that? Pursue faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember coming to grips with those things and thinking to myself, Lord, I don't know what else. I cannot make sense of these things. The only thing that I can do is trust you. And I want to encourage you today, if you've never turned from your sin to trust him, do that now. Do not delay. It's just absurd, irrational rebellion to delay turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Make your calling and election sure. Do you want to know that you're one of those that God has foreknown from before the foundation of the world? Then turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. By that, you'll make your calling and election sure. Trust him. Will not the Lord of all the earth do right? Amen, he will. And he'll do right toward you. He has promised in his word and he is faithful. Turn from your sin and trust Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the provision that you've made for our sin through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that it has nothing to do with us. If it depended upon us in any way, we would certainly be doomed. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins apart from the life that you alone bring. So thank you, Lord, for our salvation. It is all a work of your grace and we know, Lord, that because it is all a work of your grace, it is sure to all the seed of Abraham. And we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, for those here who are not converted. Lord, please uh, open their blind eyes, unstop their deaf ears, and call them, draw them, drag them to yourself, God, by your grace. Uh, give them new life in your son, and may they see uh, the treasure that is our Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he's done on our behalf. 
May they turn from their sin and put their faith in him for salvation. And may they be in eternity a trophy of your grace, uh, one of those in the innumerable host who will worship you for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for all these blessed promises. Please, uh, Lord, plant them by your spirit deep within our heart and mind. Help us to meditate on these things so that we understand them, uh, so that when we worship, Lord, uh, our renewed minds with an informed understanding fuels and motivates our worship, and fuels and motivates and emboldens our faith so that we might live and worship you as we should. For your glory, God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.